right, good evening, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we'll be tonight. Ephesians 4. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is the bread that we eat. It's the spiritual bread that nourishes us and helps us to grow and to mature and to become more than just um, born again. It uh, brings us to maturity is what Paul gets to tonight in this chapter. We've, Lord, we've read three chapters of where we're seated in you, what we have in you, the treasures that we have in you, the rewards, um, the inheritance, all the things that Paul points to gets us firmly seated with you. And then from that, he moves into chapters four and five, which shows us our walk. So God, I pray that you'd help us to hear tonight everything that you have for us, to improve our walk, to either maybe even get us started walking. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins in chapter 4 with, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, which is what he said last time. Last week in chapter 3, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus. For that reason, for your sakes, Gentiles, I've been put in prison. As a minister, as a pastor, as someone who is an apostle, that's just part of the territory. That's just what you do. And so he reminds them, as I've already mentioned in the prayer, the first three chapters, where they're seated, what they have. He's trying to really get them grounded. Because from that understanding of grace, from that understanding of your position in Christ, your position with God, your favor, the grace, the mercy that he's given you, that you're a child, a son, a daughter, that's the only place we can start walking from. Every other religion in the world, and we've mentioned this before, and some take exception to it, although they shouldn't, it's the truth. I challenge them to show me otherwise. Every other religion in the world starts with the walk in order to get that position in God or with God, whatever God they serve. And it's a frustrating endeavor for them. You'll see some walk on hot coals or show the proof of their love by laying on beds of nails or blowing themselves up in the name of their God, killing infidels in hopes that they might find favor because they never, ever know where they stand with their God. And only through sacrificing themselves do they gain any favor. They hope there still is no guarantee of that. Our loving God in Christianity, the only true God, the true and living God, gives us that position before all of that before any self-sacrifice takes place in our life, if any sacrifice takes place in our life, we already have the position of salvation, the position of as much favor as we could ever get in Jesus. As much favor as the Son has, we have. And so Paul takes half the letter to explain that so that he can move into chapter 4 to show our appropriate response from us. Whether we respond or not, that's up to James to decide, right? Show me your faith by your works or with your words, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He contended, James, the writer of James, that 
Real faith has action. It just does. Living faith moves people into behaving properly, into walking with the Lord. Dead faith, well, people stay the same. They never mature. They never grow. They never walk. They never change. There's no repentance. And so James challenges us in that. Being always careful in his letter, his little tiny epistle, to never insinuate that you get that favor from your works, just that that favor that God shows you should show up with works. Or, and I'll add this to James's letter, you don't understand. And I think that should help us all with our walk. When I find myself reading through chapter 4 and 5, which we will tonight, and not living up to it or not seeing that evidence in my life, the problem isn't me to have more gumption or more intestinal fortitude, more guts tomorrow to really discipline myself to walk with Jesus. It's that I don't understand chapters one through three. And that's what needs to happen in my life. I need to spend less time building up the courage to be a Christian and more time just spending time in his presence. Being around Jesus. Reading about his love for me. Understanding his initiation into my life. His revelation into my life. I love you. I sent my son to die for you. I want you to know that first. And so Paul spends a lot of time on that. So as we go through 4 and 5, I just wanted to preface it with, if you find yourself lacking in those areas, it isn't necessarily that you're deficient in um, discipline. It's that you're deficient in understanding what you have. But make no mistake, you have it. That's the key. It's from that love that God shows us that we can even come close to the holiness that he calls us to. So verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, beg you, ask you to look, search out, and do, that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Now, he's not making a doctrinal statement, as some will take this out of context, and I don't want to take the time to do that. It's just not worth teaching something that's not true. He's simply trying to say, we're all together in this. There aren't different Jesuses, there aren't different spirits, there isn't a different church here, there, and and everywhere. It's the same, we're a body. And he's mentioned that in other passages. That's all he's trying to say here. He's not trying to say there's only one baptism, and if anybody tells you otherwise, that's not true. No, he just meant the same water baptism that John had, and Sam had, and Amanda had. And I had, it's the same baptism. We were all baptized by water into Christ, by the spirit into the body, right? It's the same baptism. Now, some have taken that to extremes, but we'll talk about that a little bit. But in Matthew chapter 11, he says in verse 29, Jesus is speaking. I want you to take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want you to know about that character that I have. Jesus, the Son of God, is gentle and lowly in heart. So when Paul says here, I want you to walk worthy of the calling with all lowliness and gentleness, he's only asking us to do what Christ has already done, to be like him. And when I'm not lowly and gentle, well, then I'm not acting like Christ. That's the point. He's concerned as he's got problems in other churches that he's been dealing with of a lot of controversy and and contentions within the churches because of this very reason. There's no lowliness, there's no humility, there's no gentleness, there's just a lot of rights and expectations. He says, I don't want you to have that. I don't want you to do that. He continues then one chapter back in Matthew, Matthew 10, 34 through 39 to explain something about the unity that we're to have in the Spirit. There's a difference. We can have unity in the Spirit, but in the flesh, there probably isn't going to be a lot of unity. And oftentimes, when there are contentions, it's because someone is either being spiritual and the other person is being fleshy, or both are being fleshy, but make no mistake, flesh is involved. Unity takes place in the Spirit, not outside of it or Him. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, the division he's talking about there is simply believers in Jesus versus unbelievers in Jesus. Now, I wouldn't say that we toggle between those two characteristics in our life. I think we're believers. I think we do struggle, though, with that old nature, that old man popping up, and that is where I would say all of our problems come from. When we're in the flesh... We're not walking in a lowly way or a gentle way or a self-sacrificing way, but we were walking in pride. And so Jesus says, I've come to fix that. In John chapter 16, verses 7 through 8, the, the one spirit he's talking of here is the Holy Spirit. There aren't different spirits. Okay, I think churches, um, different churches, parts of the body of Christ all over the world. There's no better way to use the term. There's a one worldwide church of the Lord. We know that. But even Paul and Jesus says, I write to the letters to the churches, and he separates them. So we're, we're all part of the same body, and yet we are a body of Christ in ourselves. So he uses a metaphor two different ways. That being said, the one spirit is simply this. The same Holy Spirit is everywhere. There are no different uh, versions of God throughout the world in Christianity. There's one God, which transcends, he transcends all these cultural differences. I think that's important to know. That when I go to any other country or to any other, we may speak a different language, we may wear different clothes to some extent, but we have the same Holy Spirit, and those characteristics should be the same between me 
and this other brother or sister in the Lord from across the world. Their characteristics are the same. It should be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in me should be meeting the Holy Spirit in them. And there should be no differences as far as love, grace, mercy, basic doctrines. They should all be the same. We don't behave differently towards our wives in one country when Christ has shown us this is how you're to behave towards your wife universally. This isn't how you behave towards your husband in this country versus that country. That makes no difference. That's cultural. Jesus transcends that. You are to behave wisely towards your husband the way the Bible teaches, not the way your culture teaches. And if there is a, disparity, a, a, a discrepancy between the two, then we move towards and learn what Christ wants for us. There's a different work of the Holy Spirit, though. He has three different functions in this world. So it is one spirit, but he does three different things. And I'll give you the passages because I was going to go through the Greek words <laughs> again to describe the three different works of the Holy Spirit. But I don't even want to do that because you don't have to know Greek to know these things. I'm going to give you the three texts in the scriptures, in your English Bibles, whatever version you have, that explain, however you want to explain it, three different things that the Holy Spirit does to the believer. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 8. This is just a text, and we take it for what it is. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper, which we learn later on is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so that from that very text, we know that when Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit not only to the group in the upper room, but worldwide, the Holy Spirit is convicting the world, that's everybody in it, of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And that's what the Holy Spirit is, one thing that he does. The second thing he does, we see here, is to be a born-again believer. John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus is resurrected, but not yet ascended into heaven. He's with his disciples, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's different. They were born again at that point. That's another work of the Holy Spirit. After they have been born again and they've received the Holy Spirit... We have this moment in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. It's before his ascension again, but still speaking to his disciples and being assembled together with them. He, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For I, or for John, truly baptized with water, but you shall be, this is after he breathed on them, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, your ministry can't begin until after this happens. Don't go anywhere until that happens. You can't serve yet. Now, you've received the Holy Spirit. He's come alongside of you. He's in you. 
comes upon you later. So there is one spirit. And we were all baptized by Jesus into that spirit, being born again. But there are three works that he does. And Paul's not making an issue out of that. He's just trying to explain it's the same Holy Spirit in you as the same Holy Spirit in me. There shouldn't be any contentions about that. There's one baptism, he says, along with many other things, one hope and all that. And it's the baptism one that gets me stuck sometimes. Because I'll give you a scripture here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I, John the Baptist says, baptize you with water unto repentance. That's a baptism, water baptism. That's the one we're most familiar with. But he, Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's two more. So when he's talking about one baptism, he's just simply saying one faith, one belief, one God. There is no difference. But there's lots of different things happening in the Bible that are called baptisms. He's not making an issue out of that. We do. And I struggle with that sometimes. The same group that says there aren't three works of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the same group that will not accept water baptism from another church. And you must be baptized by water into their church, their group, not denominations even. Same denomination, but different location, different address. Makes no sense to me. I struggle with that. My baptism or your baptism at Calvary Chapel should work in any church. You shouldn't have to have it done again. It's one baptism. Now, baptism of the Holy Spirit, we see that happening throughout the book of Acts over and over and over again. That's just the enduing with power from on high from God to do a specific task at the specific time. It happens. We see the same group of people being baptized over and over, begin to speak in tongues or do wonders and be able to preach in a powerful way or whatever it may be. Those things happen over and over again. It's still the same spirit, though. That's the key. And so Paul just wants them to have that unity. He wants them to endeavor to keep the unity. Now that's an endeavoring. It's a process, isn't it? It's a hope. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. But we're to endeavor to. Sometimes it's a struggle. I endeavor to keep the unity. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot of unity in my life. But as long as you're endeavoring, that's all you can do. You can't help what the other person is doing. I mean, even we, have, we hear secular psychologists even telling us that. That you can't control another person's feelings or another person's um, thoughts. But you do what God's called you to do. That's all you can do. That's your, that's your controlling stake in the situation. I will endeavor, you should endeavor to keep the unity in the spirit. There's a bond of peace that takes place when we do that. There's just there. I think that's what the, what the world searches for most of all. And when they can't find that peace, they try to mask it with some other distraction. I don't have peace in my heart. I distract it with this. I fill it with that. They self-medicate. And they try to find peace through another means, another way. 
God wants to give us that peace, a peace that surpasses understanding, goes beyond what should be expected because of the situation. We just have peace because God's in our life, because Jesus dwells with us. I got those books I promised came. They're out there on the table. I put them out. My Heart, Christ's Home. For some of you, this is the right thickness. This is my kind of book here. And it's sweet. And I like these. You know why I like little books? Because they don't take a lot of time and a lot of words to say it's very simple truth. I get a little tired of people that feel like they have to have a 600-page book to get across a very simple truth. We have so much truth here, and he's very good at condensing it. That may seem big, but considering all that's in here, that's not a lot of words to cover a lot of subjects. So that's out there, and they're free. I've got a child's version and an adult version out there. And I'd probably go, you know, if you're curious, read it and bring it back, or you can leave it and leave it someplace. I mean, it's one of the greatest tracks I think you can leave for somebody. Because it isn't intentionally, if you're going to die today, would you go to heaven kind of track. It's like, no, this is what God wants for you. Just so you know, you know, this is a good one. He wants to make his home with us. The, the spirit of Christ, he says, I'm going to make myself... Uh, when I'm outside of you, and I think we still have that mentality in church sometimes, is when I'm, Jesus was loca- located here on earth, the guys were there to simply support what he did. They were basket carriers. I mean, there was those two times when they got sent out, sure, to do the healings and all those things, but that was really weird for them, and they came back and were so shocked, and it was just it was great to have Jesus back doing his thing again, you know. And he says, no, it's to your advantage that I go away because then I'm going to make my home in you. We're all going to start doing it. The same thing I'm doing right now physically on this earth, we're all going to start doing it. And that's what Paul's trying to get at with these folks. Help them to understand that. You're not in a supporting role anymore. You're in a very active role now, prominent There's one body, one spirit, just like you were called, and so on. Who's above all and through all. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. He just gives that little statement at the end there to qualify what he was talking about. What do you mean ascended and gave gifts and captured? That might have been foreign to the Ephesians. What is all this? Well, we've been studying a long time. Most of us have read through. And if you don't know, we're going to go through just a few passages to kind of understand what Paul's getting at. Because there are some... A lot of things took place at the cross and the... Resurrection and all. We need to see that. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, the scribes and the Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which would have caused them all to, what do you mean by that? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's where we get our three days and three nights from. 
Now, they didn't understand that at the time because they didn't realize he was going to die on a cross or that he was going to rise again and there were going to be three days difference between those two events. That's what happens. That's the sign. Jesus teaches on this a little bit. Where is this center of the earth? What are these three days and three nights? What's the, where will you be in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31? We don't believe this is a parable because he, he doesn't teach it like a parable. This is a narrative of what happened. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Both are dead. Neither are in heaven. Neither are in hell. Now, Hades means hell. It's a different version, but we're not talking about the lake of fire version in the book of Revelation. This is the center of the earth. This is the, the abode of the dead. Everybody that died before Christ came, went here in one of two compartments either the hot side waiting for the lake of fire, which they're still there now waiting for that judgment day, or in Abraham's bosom waiting for the Messiah, dying in faith, which we'll read here in Hebrews, but not receiving the promise yet. And so Lazarus went to the good side. The rich man went to the hot side. That's where Jesus goes. When it says here that Jesus led captivity captive, we believe that when he ascended into heaven or came up, rose from the dead, he had been down there showing those who died in faith that he was the Christ. They had received him, receiving the promise, were brought with him out of the grave, out of the good side, out of Abraham's bosom, out of paradise, which before Christ is always down and after Christ's ascension is always up in scriptures because he led captivity captive and Those who died in faith without receiving the promise, which we'll read, led them. And so Paul's saying when he did that, he gave gifts to men. I mean, a lot happened in those times. Let me finish the story. Then he cried out, back to Luke 16. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. So there we see the differences in the two locations. One place is a place of comfort, one is a tormented place. And besides all this, there's a There's between you and me, there's this great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. You are locked in. That's it. There's no movement after death. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, my relatives that are still alive, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes from them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead, which Jesus did, and we still have that problem today. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, I promised I'd read this to you so you understand why they didn't just automatically go to heaven. David, um, Abraham, Moses, any of these Saints, we know from the Old Testament, they loved God. What do you mean they didn't go to heaven when they died? The writer of Hebrews, Paul, my opinion, these all died in faith. If you don't know, Hebrews 11 is, we call it the hall of faith. It goes through all the saints of the Old Testament. It's a wonderful chapter. You can read it, but we're not going to do it tonight. These that I've forementioned, All died in the faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I don't know who this Messiah is. I don't know what this seed means from Eve, but I believe all those prophecies that were spoken of of this Messiah, and they died in that faith, but not receiving the promise yet. And so because Jesus is the first fruits of everything, he's the first to go to heaven. He goes down to those who died in faith, but not receiving the promises, was the promise, believed on the promise, led captivity captive, and brought them in to heaven with him. That's what he's saying. Now, is Paul trying to teach that tonight in this chapter? No, that was a big springboard on my part to give you some solid understanding, I hope, of the mechanics of it all in the Old Testament. All Paul is saying is here, I'm going to move into now gifts that God gave. Not only did he lead captivity captive, Abraham, Moses, David, all going to heaven, that all took place. But when that all happened, he also gave gifts to men. And that's what he wants to move into in this text. Verse 11, And he, Jesus himself, gave, and these are the gifts some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There's no comma there. We believe that's two. That's the same gifting. For this purpose, for this reason, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long does it last? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. There's a semicolon there, which means that's where a period could go, but because Paul has run on sentences, they had to put a semicolon there. So that's what I'm going to use. I'm going to use it as a period, okay, so we can break this down a little bit, because he does continue. There are some gifts. Now, this is not all the gifts that God gives. This is some of them. Some other gifts are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are several lists in the Bible of gifts. And I wouldn't even pigeonhole that's or, you know, codify or put in cement. Those are the only gifts. I think there's probably a lot. But these are the ones that are mentioned. Here he mentions some specific ones because they're meant to equip people, saints, for the work of the ministry. Corinthians 12, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. 
For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, another a word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things and distributes to each one individually as he wills. These are gifts given to men. And that's another big controversy we all have. Some of these gifts aren't for today, they would say. We don't have one scripture that tells us that. That doctrine comes from experience only, unfortunately. I don't know if there's some guilt associated with it or some, I don't know what it is or where it comes from or why. My guess is it's pride. I don't do it. Therefore, it must not be for today. Pretty arrogant, I would think. There are many things I don't have gifts in. I think, I, someone taught one time that every pastor should have all the gifts. That way he knows what they're like and all that. I don't know that that's true or not because I don't have them all. I've yet to have someone's leg grow back. That's a miracle. And I don't laugh at that. I'm just saying that's just never happened. I'm not saying it doesn't though. I'm not so arrogant as to think that because I can't make someone's arm become unwithered or someone who's in a wheelchair stand up or whatever, that it doesn't exist anymore. What a horrible thing. To take that hope away from people, to take that gift out of the church and that's relegate that to the, to the past and to put it in the closet and that's not for today anymore. I don't have a passage to go on. I do have my own pride to go off of, though. I don't want to blame that on them all the time, but I just, what a horrible thing to do to the body of Christ to say that some of your functions don't work anymore. Hmm. There's a lot there, isn't there? Cutting off parts of your body that you just don't think are functioning anymore. I'll, I won't go too controversial tonight. I'll step back. Vestigial organs. Let's talk about those for a minute. And that's very interesting to you, I'm sure, on a Wednesday night. But a lot of the vestigial organs, organs we think are left over from the Darwinian evolution of, of life, things that are just left over, you know, partial tails and extra toes and appendixes and different things. We're finding out now, not so vestigial, not so unimportant. We remove them like they're candy, like they're extra weight. And we're finding out later on, oh my goodness, they performed a function. It was a subtle function or an unknown function, but boy, they perform a function. And we should have kept them. Or we shouldn't be so quick to remove them. That being said, and that's as far as I'll go with that, spiritually speaking, may we not cut off any of the vital organs that we need in the body of Christ for a well-functioning, healthy body. Every gift is for today. We have no scripture telling us that they've ended. Only men have said that. These gifts that he speaks of here specifically are for the edifying of the body of Christ until a certain time. And the time indicates when we're perfect. So when do these giftings end? When do we stop having these gifts? 
I believe, when Christ comes. That was a big thing at our Bible study. I was in Dana College. I was under um, a Bible study there, a non-traditional student, a, a, you know, a student-led Bible study. And we were talking about one of those passages, and it, it came up, you know, the gifts of the Spirit in the end of chapter 12 and how long until that which is perfect has come. That list we just read of all the gifts, the end of that chapter says, when do these stop? Well, when that which is perfect has come. And the teaching was that that meant the Bible. That's not how it reads. That has to be inserted. It, it, It very clearly reads, they're talking about Jesus. Not until Jesus comes again are these gifts no longer valid because that which is perfect has come and that which is, you know, is, is partial and, and fading goes away. But scriptures don't replace gifts ever. The scriptures teach us about the gifts. The idea that a canonized book can replace the work of the Spirit in a person through gifts, it just doesn't line up biblically at all. They're very important, and they're before today, and everybody has one. There isn't a person, a believer in the world that does not have a gift from the Holy Spirit. And I just put that out there because, well, I think we all need to know that. I think we do. (laughs) There are some surveys online that you can take that can help you find out what your gifting is. I, I know, I laugh too. I don't mind if you take it. I, I, I'll never post it or something or show you where that link is and say you ought to do this because I think that, I don't think that's how you have to find out. But some people just are curious. Fine, maybe you need that. I know my gifting. I know what I'm called to do. I'm called to be a pastor teacher. I knew that when I started teaching. I didn't know that beforehand. I had a burning to serve God. I didn't know why or what. I just knew I needed to serve God somehow, some way. And someone asked me to teach, and I did. And afterwards, someone said, that was really good. And that was, well, that was a confirmation to me. Oh, they didn't throw Bibles. They didn't walk out and say, well, better luck next time or anything like that. They said, hey, I got something from it. I'm like, all right. Now, that wasn't all the confirmation I got. I kept on doubting and wondering and trying and hoping and failed. But eventually I settled in on it. I said, okay, I got it. I'll accept it. I'll accept the calling. Not that you can reject it, but you cannot do it. You can just simply not do the gift. That's a choice. It is voluntary. I understood that. So the, the gifting you may have, or I know you do have, but they maybe haven't discovered yet, will be confirmed by other people. I think that's the best way. I think what happens in that situation is a lot of times we hope we have a certain gift and we find ourselves doing this other thing over and over and over again, but we keep looking at that other gift. Like, oh, I sure like to do that, but we're really good and handy and it seems to come naturally to us, but boy, I hope I get to do that over there someday. We don't realize this is the gift. People keep telling us that. They keep showing us that. They keep, wow, it was great. You know, well, I don't know why. It just comes easy to me. Yeah, but it doesn't come easy to everybody else. I wonder why, you know. 
And so I believe that you'll find out what your gift is through you obviously being put in positions to do these things. Naturally, God just ordains these moments and it just happens. It just really goes well, you know, and people tell you that and they appreciate that and they feel edified and you feel useful <laughs> and you're, you're building up the body and people are pleased. I'm not saying you only have one. You could have lots. You could have them all. That'd be great. You may get different gifts at different seasons or different times in your life. You may go on a mission trip and all of a sudden they've asked you to teach. You've never done that in your life. But for this trip, here I go. And you start teaching. People got saved. It was the worst teaching I've ever heard in my life. And people got saved. That's the Lord. You know, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. These things are for the edifying of the body of Christ to build them up to encourage them so we have a strong, healthy body. Everybody needs to do their gifts. Now, don't mistake these for the fruit, which we've already taught in Galatians 5. Fruit's different. Everybody has fruit if they're a Christian. Everybody should have fruit. And again, if you don't have fruit, the problem isn't that I need to have more intestinal fortitude and more guts and discipline to produce fruit. You know. No, it means you need to get grounded more. You need to have more time, more deeper roots, more sunshine, more water from the Lord so that you can be a healthy plant that produces fruit. That's the problem, not you endeavoring. The fruit is this. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That fruit should be coming from every believer. That's not negotiable. That isn't handed out in measures. That's just fruit from being a believer. Gifts are different. So, I've done this, Jesus says. I've equipped some to be pastors and teachers, some to be evangelists, some to be prophets. Here's the thing I read, though, that's like the, you know how there's matter and dark matter? <laughs> the dark matter that I see here, the in between the lines is not everybody's an evangelist. Not everybody's a pastor and teacher. I see the negative in that too. When I go out and try to do things I'm not equipped by the Spirit to do, I know it. It is an obvious flop. It's an obvious work of the flesh. I was watching, um, this is probably not very sensitive of me, but leave it to me, um, looking up firearms training and trainers right? There are some guys that I can watch and I, I click with their personality. I can understand them and I, I like them. There's other guys who just have way too much bravado for me, you know, and they start talking to you like a drill instructor. What you got here is a firing pin over here. You don't have to be like that. That's ridiculous. Just be calm and rational. No wonder women feel uncomfortable with male firearms instructors because you act like an, a fool and, and dumb and, and, and all. So I'm going through all that. And I'm looking at these guys trying to figure out um, who I would like to get certified by and, and all. And, and uh, there's some people that just carry themselves in such a way that it's just natural. What I noticed about the guys with a lot of bravado, when they yell and scream because someone made a mistake in their class or on the range, it's because they made the mistake. As the firearms instructor, you're responsible for all the safety that happens in there. When you see something unsafe happening and you blow up at that person, that's because you didn't do your job as the fire safety guy. You weren't running the range right. And I see that when people try to go outside of what God's gifted them to do. 
and they try to start or do something because, well, they just have this impression they're supposed to do it, and then it falls and fails and flops. And who do they blame? People. You know, people didn't come to the Bible study. Nobody's coming and listening to the Word of God being taught. Maybe that's because you're not very good. Maybe that's because you're not gifted in that area. Maybe it's not of God. It's okay. That's important. When I try to when I try to evangelize, people don't get saved. Sometimes people will receive the Lord from a teaching, but that's the Lord. But if I stand up and try to give a Greg Laurie or a or a, a Billy Graham message, I could I could read Billy Graham's message or memorize it and give it just for, no one will get saved. This is not anointed. God's not in it. He's not, he hasn't gifted me to do that. I'm not so prideful to say, stupid people don't know good thing when they see it. That's arrogance and pride. That's a danger. Giftings are by the Lord. The fruit is from God. We plant, we sow, we give sunlight, we give the water, we do that, but the increase is His. And Paul's just trying to explain that to the church. And here's why we have these people to help unify the body of Christ, to help increase knowledge, to give them an understanding and to edify them. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You think Paul's got an issue with some teachers? He hates the wolves. He, in fact, said that in Ephesus. He says, now, when you come... When we have this big meeting and the, and the, and the pastors come in and, and the book of Acts and, they, and, and, the, and the leaders come to him on the first leadership conference ever, he says, when I leave, savage wolves are going to come in from among you. That's what he's talking about, these folks right here. I have set up, Christ has set up, given some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry that they might not be tossed to and fro. Put that all together and understand that. That's what it is. I am all for evangelism, but it's not the only thing. It isn't. I'm all for the birth of new believers, but if we stop raising them, if we don't teach them what it's like to walk with the Lord and to grow and to mature and get off of milk and move into solid food and become mature, stable Christians that can lead other people to the Lord, we're failing. Evangelists have their part, but pastors and teachers have their part too. So do apostles, people who start churches and are sent out. These are all essential. But a church cannot function if all it does is evangelize. It can't. I'm not saying you don't. You should. But you've got to teach and help people grow, which is what Peter or Paul is trying to get across here and teach them. Now, but, verse 15, speaking truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Did you read that? Every part does its share. There are no vestigial Christians in a church, in the body of Christ. Everybody needs to do their part. That being said, it causes growth of the body for the edifying of, its, of itself in love. You begin to take care of yourself. My hand, this right hand, does a lot of work in the morning as I look in the mirror. 
It does things my hair and my face and my ears and my teeth can't do for themselves. It brushes, it scrubs, it combs, it washes, it does all those things, all to make this beautiful work of art that you see before you tonight. My beard can't trim itself. My teeth can't brush itself. The body of Christ to be a healthy body needs all these functioning parts working together without fanfare, I might add. Does anybody notice the right hand doing all this work for you? Did the teeth ever say thank you? Get over it, right hand. Who do you serve? You're a part of it also. Do you ever thank the feet, Mr. Right Hand, that you got carried over there to the refrigerator to go grab the milk? For You know, everybody's doing something. Everybody needs to be doing something because it helps for the healthy, strong body that we need to have. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 through 11, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's when all these things are done. When do we stop having the gifts of the Spirit? When Jesus comes again. Verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify to the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from a life from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness in their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, you wouldn't think that Paul would need to write that, but he is telling the Christians to be Christians. These things are what you used to do, and this is what the rest of the Gentiles do, but you've become a born-again believer. It's not okay for you anymore. That needs to go. He's describing something that he describes in several epistles, whether that's Romans, Colossians, or here, the old man versus the new man. What you used to do versus what you're supposed to be doing. Those things need to go, lewdness, uncleanness, greediness, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have learned him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, colon, here's what you should have learned, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is calling us to action and responsibility. You do have a a responsibility to put off that old man. In other words, it's a choice. Whether I'm the old man or the new man or the new old woman or the new woman. In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. You still can sin. You've been freed from the bondage of it, though. You don't have to sin anymore. Colossians 3, verses 8 through 10. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, the only comfort I have from that is in the sense that Paul had to write this to believers to start doing. Which means even as believers, we can still have these attributes in our life. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you're not being obedient. And you haven't been changed. Because he's writing to the Colossians saying, you ought to be able to put these things off. In other words, it was a problem. We need to get rid of it. The new man, Colossians 3, continues 12 through 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, once you put those things off, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you, so you also must do. These are things we do as Christians. We're running behind, so I've got to speed this up a little bit. Therefore, verse 25, back in chapter 4, we'll finish this up. Putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now that's just not for married couples. I like to apply that to married. It includes married couples by all means, but that's everybody. Don't go to bed mad at everybody. It's okay. Forgive them. Nor give place to the devil because that's what happens. He gets his foothold there with that bitterness. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. It used to be that one of the most controversial subjects I could bring up in church was homosexuality. And it is still a controversial subject, but you'd be surprised how controversial this one is. If I was to explain this tonight, which God probably has not given me enough time to do so, I'd be in more trouble with this than I would with the homosexuality. If I was to teach, here I go, that you need to stop stealing, and the the opposite of stealing, he says, is working hard for your own money. When I became a pastor, there were certain things that I had to achieve and do, which are not required in Calvary Chapel anymore. One of them was you had to do book reports on all these books. You had to listen through all the 2000 series and the 3000 series of Pastor Chuck Smith. You had to write book reports on these things and tape reports and answer questions and questionnaires. But the other thing, you cannot be on welfare. You cannot be on Medicaid. You have to be trusting in the Lord in everything. If you can't afford insurance, then you don't have insurance. That's how you carried yourself as a Christian, as a pastor. You want to talk about getting in trouble today? Bringing that up? I just did. We're called to that. We're called to walk, trusting in the Lord. That's a hard thing to take on. The reason he wants you to work hard or find new ways to make money and stop taking from other people because I don't think people understand that when you're not providing that for your family, that's fine. But when you expect it, someone else is. It's not free. Someone else is paying for what you're not doing. I'm all for that. I understand that. I can't afford it. Then you don't have it. For me to ask 
someone else to do that for my kids, I don't think it's right. I think I'm stealing out of their kids' mouth. They can't go on family vacations because taxes are so high to pay for what I haven't done. That's not fair. It's not right. And that's more controversial now in the church to say that than it is to talk about the other that I mentioned. So be it. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. (laughs) Got to edify that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. And then my Bible's torn because one of my granddaughters ripped out part of it. So I have a hole here away from you with all something, something and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Paul leaves us with that in this chapter. Put away all that bitterness, that wrath, that anger, that clamor, that evil speaking. Put it away from you. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. In other words, it's the people that have wronged you that need the forgiveness. It's very important. And so we're called to that. That new man, put it on. I know that I offended people tonight. I know that I did. It's always, it's hard to hear that. And you may not agree with me, and that's fine. But I want you to know from experience and from walking the walk, I'm not asking you or talking to you about something that we haven't done as a family. For our 30 years of marriage, not once. And God has always faithfully taken care of us. Sometimes miraculously. Sometimes we went without. We learned both to be abased and to abound. We've walked that walk. It means everybody can. It may be a hard thing to hear, but everybody can. And I, your prayers and your faith and your relationship with God gets a whole lot closer when you do that. What you think you deserve and right and can excuse and can talk yourself into is also keeping you from a deeper, closer walk in some ways. Just keep that in mind. It may be tough to hear, but is it the next evolution in your walk with the Lord? Is it your next maturity? Is it your next area that God wants to work in? I'll leave it there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We love you. We trust you. We thank you for Paul's heart to give such a deep, um, thorough um, explanation of our faith, what we have in you and how you want us to walk now. And then also finally in chapter six, he's going to teach us how to stand firm, not just walk, but to stand firm spiritually. God, help us to take it all in and receive everything you have for us, Lord. We love you and pray that you bless us as we go tonight. Keep everybody safe as they travel. We know snow's coming and and all, but we know that we trust you and we're praying for um, just a protected travel home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. We'll be glad to pray with you.